The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you today is The True Cost of Freedom, and I'll set things up like this. Uh, earlier this year, there was a, a young man by the name of Jack Teixeira who made the news for all the wrong reasons. You see, as it turns out, this 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard had been stealing dozens of highly classified documents with national security uh, secrets on them, and he'd been posting them and sharing them online for his friends. He was promptly arrested by the FBI. They swooped in on his house, and he's currently awaiting trial in prison. If convicted, Tikshara's name will join a long list of other American traitors. And there's something about us. We hold a particular disdain for those people who would put American lives at risk. Of course, the most notorious traitor in our country's history would have to be Benedict Arnold, who, during the Revolutionary War, defected to the British Army. But it's not just a recent phenomenon. There are plenty of villains and traitors that we read about in the pages of Scripture as well. One notable example would be David's longtime associate and friend and trusted counselor, a guy by the name of Ahithophel. In in a vulnerable season of David's life and ministry, Ahithophel defected from David's camp and threw his lot behind that of David's enemy, a guy by the name of Absalom. Of course, there are others we could mention, but the most famous traitor of all, the one who's the most notorious and the most despised, to be sure, would have to be who? Judas Iscariot. And uh, his name has become synonymous with the words betrayal and treachery over the years. And I think the thing that makes his betrayal so particularly heinous is who he decided to betray. I mean, he'd been afforded the greatest privilege in the history of the world when Jesus handpicked him to be one of the 12 guys that got to walk through life with God in the flesh. Talk about winning the golden ticket. He won the the jackpot, the lottery, 10 times over. And then not only that, but we find that Jesus gave him a position of authority within the group. We know that's true because Judas was made the treasurer. He held the money bag. And so it was a a position of, of trustedness. And even though Jesus knew what was in his heart, he never treated Judas any differently. You see that through the Gospels. That's notable. He genuinely loved him to the very end. And yet, despite the, the access that he'd been granted and the privileges that he was afforded, Judas never surrendered his heart to the Lord. And in the end, He chose to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which incidentally back then was the price of a slave. Today we're going to look at his story and we're going to read about Jesus' arrest there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So go ahead and begin reading with me in verse 1. Say, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. These first couple of verses 
set the stage and describe the scene for us. Jesus at this point has shared the last supper with his disciples and upon the completion of that very sacred moment and meal, he excuses himself from the table and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet and and a show of humility and then after that he leads them on a journey. They walk along the outskirts of the ancient city along the walls of the old temple that stood there in Jerusalem. And we know that the the air was cold that night. Peter would later in this evening warm himself at a fire. And the moon would have been full because it was the Passover. And under the the light of that full moon, Jesus makes his way to this, this valley of Kidron. But before he crosses it, he lifts his eyes and he begins to pray. And we read his prayer in John 17. It's his high priestly prayer. And he prays not only for the 11 guys who were standing around him, but he expands the borders of his prayer to include all of us. And he prays for everyone who would eventually come to faith in him through their testimony. And now he's completed his prayer and he crosses over the Kidron Valley. Now, That's a bit of a misnomer there. And uh, the the word valley, it was more of a ravine than a valley. It's a steep ravine that kind of butts up between, uh, you have the Mount Zion here where the temple stood and the Mount of Olives there. But in Israel, it's kind of like they they like to, um, everything gets an upgrade. That's what our guides like to tell us. So you go to the Sea of Galilee. Eh, It's really more of a lake. And, And then you come to the Mount of Olives. And it's more of a hill, and you have the valley of Kidron, and it's a ravine, but any, I mean, by any means. It, it was unique because of where it sat. It sat just adjacent to the Temple Mount area. And what would happen is, because of its proximity, the priests used it to dispose of the blood from all of the sacrifices that would take there. And during the Passover season, when you had all of these pilgrims converging on the city, each one had their own lamb, a lamb for every family. You can imagine the amount of blood. And so they created a channel that flowed from the Temple Mount down the ravine into the brook Kidron. And during this season, the water in the brook would run murky and become brownish or reddish in its hue or color from the blood of all the sacrifices. Now, imagine Jesus lifting his robes and leading his disciples over that brook. And perhaps as he glances down, he he realizes that the blood of all of those lambs is a symbol and a picture of his blood that was about to be spilled for the sins of humanity. In fact... The word Kidron literally means gloomy or murky because of that reddish hint that the water would often take. And and it was a gloomy night. And under the, the shadows of the trees that were there in the garden that Jesus is about to enter, he would wrestle for the sins of humanity. And so it all begins to take on a deeper meaning for us. And he now brings them into this garden. Now, the other gospel authors identify it for us specifically as the garden of Gethsemane. And it's still there to this day. We were recently there in Jerusalem with our tour, and and we visited the Garden of Gethsemane. It's absolutely beautiful and serene, and, and there are olive trees. Some of them date back like 13 centuries. They're probably the offspring of the original olive trees that would have been there in Jesus' day. And John tells us that Jesus frequented this garden with his disciples. He was, he was drawn to spaces and places where, where there was just nature and beauty. I mean, many of us are. And I think there's a reason for that. 
When you open your Bible, you'll discover that gardens play a significant role in the pages of Scripture. For instance, in Genesis, we read that humanity's story, our origin story, it takes place in a garden. There in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So that's where our story begins, and perhaps that's where the saying originated that goes, one is nearer God's heart in a garden than anywhere else on earth. It's like, it just, it calls to us. And there in the garden, Adam and Eve, they had just the the most beautiful existence. Every day, they had a standing appointment with God, wherein they would take a stroll with him in the cool of the day. You know that part of the day after the sun has set and the, the heat of the day gives way to the cool air of the evening and you still have kind of that golden hour of light and there they would meet with the Lord and they would fellowship with him. That's where humanity's story begins and that's what you were created for. But then you fast forward all the way to the end of your Bible and you find that humanity's story also ends in a garden. As John the Apostle gives us this picture of the heavenly Jerusalem as it descends from heaven and comes to the earth, we can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. And what's interesting about this this city that he describes is it's really more of a garden city. And the description of it reads eerily similar to the description we find of Eden in Genesis complete with the river that runs through the middle of it. It's filled with trees. And there in the midst of the the city of God is the tree of life, and its leaves are used for the healing of the nations. So we have these two gardens, a garden at the beginning, and we know where we're headed back to the garden. And the story of the Bible is from garden to garden, but in the middle, paradise gets lost. And that's where this garden comes in. You see, this garden is important because it's where God reopened the door for us to return to Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden and this earth was placed under a curse. And ever since that day, mankind has been desperately trying to get back. All of our attempts to to scratch the itch, as it were, on the inside of our soul, all of our attempts to to satisfy that that yearning that we've been designed and built with God, by by God with, it's all an attempt to get back to Eden. And, And by the way, it's never enough. No matter what you chase in this world, have you discovered that? No matter how high you climb, no matter how much you accrue, no matter how much money you make, no matter how successful you are, it will never be enough because it's not Eden. And that's why there's there's this gnawing sense of disillusionment that we ultimately end up with in life. And it's why we fight this feeling of frustration. It's because in the deepest recesses of the human heart and soul, we recognize that we were created for Eden. And that's why Jesus came. He came to this garden to do battle, to reopen the gates. He came to restore to us everything that we had lost in Eden. And the way that he did that was by succeeding in all the places where Adam failed. You know, one of the names for Jesus in the New Testament is the second Adam or the last Adam. 
And so he retraced the steps of Adam, only he succeeded where Adam failed. So in the first garden, Adam rebels against God and rejects his authority and chooses his own path, essentially saying, I'll be my own God. Whereas here in Gethsemane, Jesus surrenders and submits to the will of the Father and chooses the path of obedience. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. That was his prayer. In the original garden, Adam took the fruit of the tree and thus brought a curse upon humanity. In the second garden, Gethsemane, Jesus agrees to climb up on the tree to bear the curse for humanity. Galatians says that cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus bore the curse. Because of Adam's disobedience in the first garden, death comes to all humanity. But through Jesus' act of obedience in the garden of Gethsemane, life is offered to all of us. You see, we couldn't get back to the garden on our own. So Jesus came down and made it possible for us. Someone say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, it's important to know that for us to be welcomed back, he had to be crushed. And that's what Gethsemane means, by the way. It speaks of an olive press. And the way that they would make olive oil back then is they had a heavy stone uh, slab and they would use a millstone or something to crush the olives and that would extract the oil and separate it from the pulp and then the oil could be used for a variety of purposes. But it's a fitting picture, isn't it, of, of the crushing that Jesus would endure on this night as he wrestled in his soul with what it was going to take to bring mankind back into the garden. Now, John, he just kind of breezes over most of that. He doesn't linger on the agony Jesus went through on this night. He doesn't talk about him sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He leaves that part of the story for the other gospel authors to tell. Instead, he focuses on the betrayal Jesus experienced at the hands of Judas. And we read about that in verses 2 and 3. You see, when Judas showed up to arrest Jesus, he didn't come alone, but we read about him leading a group of religious officials as well as a detachment of Roman soldiers. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Under normal circumstances, the Jewish people wanted nothing to do with the Romans who were occupying the land at the time. They hated one another, and yet we find them collaborating and working together on this night. Evidently, these two Normal enemies were able to find common ground in their shared hatred of Jesus, which I guess reminds me a little bit of today. It never ceases to amaze me that how you can have two groups that are typically diametrically opposed to one another, but they're willing to band together in the name of tearing down Christianity and everything that it represents. That's what we see, Judas leading this detachment of soldiers. By the way, the, the word detachment there, it speaks specifically of a number that ranges between two and 600. Judas didn't just show up with a few soldiers. He's leading a small army. Clearly, he came ready for a fight. And notice, too, how they were equipped with torches and lanterns and weapons. I already told you the moon was full and bright. They didn't need the lanterns. It was a, a show of force. They meant to intimidate Jesus. Jesus and his disciples were unarmed, yet they came with weapons. And the whole thing was meant to, to just intimidate and scare. On the surface, the story has the feel of a pack of wolves who have cornered their prey and they're slowly moving in for the kill. And yet, 
Well, that's how it appears from the outside. Upon closer examination, what we discover is that Jesus is really one calling all the shots. He's in control. Go back to verse two. It says, Judas knew the place that Jesus took his disciples to. That's significant. I mean, if Jesus was trying to hide from Judas, then he certainly wouldn't have gone to a place that was familiar to his enemy. No, no, no. He didn't go there to hide from Judas. He went there to confront him. And you need to know this about the Lord. And this part of the story, as we move now into Calvary and the passion, um, Jesus isn't a helpless victim. He's a willing sacrifice. He's not running for his life. He's preparing to lay it down. And he was in complete control, as we see in verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? I love that. He's not running away. He's not hiding. But he goes out. He went out to meet them. Then instead of waiting for them to speak, Jesus takes charge and he says, who are you looking for? You know, usually the ones who are doing the arresting dictate the conversation. But in this instance, Jesus takes the lead. And it just shows that he's the one calling the shots. I love the following description that author Greg Morse offers of this scene. And I just want to read it to you because I think it paints a picture. He writes, and I quote, torches danced in the night. Weapons were unsheathed. Judas led his oppressors to him. After warring in prayer and watering the ground with blood-laden sweat, Jesus led the disciples across the brook Kidron to the place in the, the garden. The soldiers arrived. Angels watched with bated breath as the tsunami of the Father's holy wrath rose before him. No other hero could step forth except the one who knew perfectly well the absolute horror that awaited him. He saw the piercing of hands. He envisioned the slapping, the spitting, the beard pulling. He anticipated the lashings, the beating beyond human recognition, the oppression. He knew his disciples would soon desert him. And most terrifying of all, he knew his father would forsake him. And he stepped forward. It's, it gives you chills. I mean, it reminds me of all those, those scenes in movies where the movie reaches its apex or its, its climax. And it's in the pivotal moment that the hero steps forward to defend his own, even though he knows it's going to cost him his very life. And that's what we see Jesus doing in this scene. And then he reveals his identity after he asks, who are you looking for? They respond in verse five saying, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I absolutely love this part of the story. When the soldiers said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. And by the way, you can take your pen and you can put a strike through the word he because it's not there in the original manuscripts. It was added by the translators. What Jesus literally said was, ego am I. I am. And we've already talked at length about how that is the very name by which God revealed himself to his people and to Moses and to the nation there at the burning bush. He is the great I am. He is the becoming one. And in applying that name to himself, Jesus was identifying himself as God. And so when he asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They got it right and wrong. You see, they had it half right. They'd come in search of the man. 
named Jesus. And he was fully man, but what they neglected to consider is that he was also fully God. They recognized that he had come from Nazareth, and that was his physical address, but they, they, they forgot that he was originally descended from heaven, which was his eternal home, and so they got it half right. They knew that his name was Jesus. They forgot, though, that that was just one of his many titles. He's also the Prince of Peace. He's the eternal word. He's the good shepherd, the light of the world, the faithful friend. He was there at the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and he'll be there at the end. He is the great I am. Someone say amen. amen. And all he had to do was mention his name, and 200 soldiers instantly fell on their faces before him. Imagine that scene. <laughs> And let me remind you that these weren't, you know, just a bunch of guys. These were soldiers who were part of what is widely considered and regarded one of the most feared and certainly one of the best trained armies in the history of the world. These were Roman soldiers. And as such, they would have been equipped with special sandals. And on the bottom of their sandals, there were, there were shards of glass and pieces of metal embedded into them. Why? Because if a soldier loses his footing in battle, it's a sure, quick ticket to death. And so to prevent that, they had all of this, these special things in their sandals so that they could stand firm in the midst of the fight. Yet here Jesus just speaks his name. Two words is all it took to knock them to the ground. And I love in the middle of verse 5 how John takes pains to, to point out that Judas the traitor, and I don't know that he so much as wrote the word traitor as he spat it out of his pen. Judas the traitor was standing with them. Why does he include that detail? He wants us to know. And then we watched Judas hit the ground, bro. It was awesome. Now why did Jesus knock them over? Was it just kind of like a, a cool party trick, or was there more going on there? And, and I, I certainly, obviously, believe there's more to it than, than just wanting to, to show that. And specifically, there were two things that he was doing. First, I think he did it again to remind everyone that night who was really in charge. These guys thought they were holding all the cars. They thought they were the one calling the shots, but Jesus says, uh-uh. You have no authority, but that I give to you, and I'm going to lay down my life. But just to remind you who's really in charge, I'm going to show you. And then the other reason they fell over is equally important. And that's because they found themselves in this moment in the very presence of God. And whenever you find yourself in the presence of God, the right position to take is face down in his presence. In fact, when you comb through scripture, what you'll find is that every time someone has an encounter with the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of the Lord, the ground isn't low enough. It happened to men like Moses and Aaron and Abraham and Ezekiel and Daniel and Solomon and the whole nation as the glory of God descended and it found its abode there in the presence. All the people found themselves face down in the presence of the Lord. So too, the Apostle Paul, when he was knocked to the ground by the blinding light on the Damascus road, he found himself in the presence of the Lord and he fell down before God. And John the Beloved, when he writes the book of Revelation over and over again, he's like a pancake, just constantly. It's, it's like the knee-jerk response. His instincts kick in and every time he's confronted with some new dimension of God's glory in heaven, he just hits the ground and the angels are always peeling him back off the ground. And so there's this, this idea, this sense in which when you find yourself in the presence of the Lord, you're humbled and you're brought low. 
And I pray that you have this experience. There have been times when in my devotions, and and you should all develop the habit, the pattern, the discipline of spending time with the Lord daily in his word. Why wouldn't you want to hear what God has to say with you? And there have been experiences where it was like heaven came down and, and God just was in the room and it became clear to me. And in those moments, instinctively, I just kind of, I'll get down on my knees. Sometimes I'll just lay down on the couch if that's where I am or on my bed and I'll just, I'll bask in the glory of God. And that's an, a component of worship. The psalmist described it like this in Psalm 95, six and seven. Let's read this together out loud. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We ought to approach God with a proper sense of reverential awe and wonder and humility. In fact, did you know this? The, the, the most commonly used Greek word translated as worship in your New Testament, it's the Greek word proskuneo. And it's a word that, that was borrowed from the ancient culture, and it meant to blow kisses, which is a beautiful thought, and it also meant to bow in obeisance. And, and as I mentioned, this was borrowed from the culture of the day, where any time you as a commoner would find yourself in the presence of a dignitary or a king, you were required to bow to honor their presence. And if they would do that in front of earthly kings, how much more should we adopt that spirit and that posture in our hearts as it pertains to the Lord? You know, someday Jesus is going to come back. Somebody say amen. Amen. And when he does, what happened to these soldiers on this day is going to happen to everybody everywhere. Paul talks about it in his letter to the Philippians, and he says, on that day when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow in heaven, so that's all the angels, and on earth, that's all of us, and under the earth, that's all the demons, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Amen. On that day, it's not just going to be Christians that are praising the Lord, but every angel of heaven, every demon of hell, every hardened cynic, and every atheist is going to take the knee and declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But let me encourage you, don't wait until that day to do it. Those people, many of them will be doing it begrudgingly, out of compulsion. They'll be forced in that moment to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. But we have an opportunity before us today to worship him free to do it out of a heart filled with love for a God who gave himself for us through his own son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is king, and he reveals himself as such in this chapter. But then as we close in verses seven through nine, he also protects his own. And let's finish with this. Again, they asked him, who is it you want? And this is how they responded the second time. Jesus of Nazareth, you know? I don't think they had the same tone in their voice the second time that they did the first time. You know, like, hey, we're looking for Jesus. And then as this time, as they're picking themselves up off the ground and dusting off their arms, they're saying, uh, please don't knock us over. Jesus, we're looking for Jesus, you know, much softer and nicer. And notice again how Jesus is the one dictating the terms of his surrender. After all, they're not really in a position to argue with him anymore. He could have easily just walked away from them. What are they going to do about it? But he didn't. Why? Because this is why he came. He came for this moment. 
His whole life had been leading up to this climactic moment. And where are his priorities? His mind is focused on these men. He says, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Jesus was a true shepherd. And as such, we read in John 10 that the good shepherd, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's where Jesus' heart is in this moment. Now consider with me for a moment who these men were that Jesus was fighting to protect here. These were the same men who had just fallen asleep on Jesus when he had asked them to pray. He said, please, will you watch with me? Will you pray with me? My, my soul is weary and heavy, laden to the point of death. And they said, we got you. And three minutes later, they were, they were characterized by a willing spirit and a weak flesh. These were the, the same men who were about to abandon Jesus. In just a few moments' time, they would all flee. They'd run away. These are the same men who could never quite put it together. They never got it right. They were constantly arguing and bickering and fighting with one another over who was going to be the greatest. These are the men that Jesus was about to bleed and die for. Why would he go out of his way to protect these men? And the answer is because he loved them. They may have been imperfect and deeply flawed men, but they were men that he loved, men that he had come to save. And that's tremendously encouraging and comforting for you today. And I'll tell you why. Because you and I are just like those men. Can I get a witness? We're just like the disciples. We're frail. We're flawed. Like them, we're often characterized by a willing spirit and a weak flesh. We often get it wrong, but Jesus loves us anyway. He stepped in for us just like he did for them. And when he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with those Roman soldiers, he was doing it on our behalf just as he did it for theirs. And so the statement that he makes here, if you're looking for me, then let them go. It becomes a window, if you will, into his entire mission. You see, Jesus came to take us our place. And by taking our place, we could be set free. In fact, it's interesting to note that the words there, let them go, that is the same definition, the working definition of the word forgiveness. Take me, Jesus is saying, and forgive them. And isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? We're forgiven because he was forsaken. We can, be, we can be cleansed because he allowed himself to bear the curse. We can be washed whiter than snow because he allowed his back to be whipped with the cat of nine tails. Isaiah the prophet described this in stunning detail hundreds of years in advance of the crucifixion. And you can read about it in Isaiah 53. But I've just kind of extracted two verses that I want to read together with you that, that, that paint this picture for us. Go ahead and read them with me out loud. Surely... He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He was crushed for our sins. He bore the punishment for our iniquities and by his stripes, we are healed. We claim that promise today. He took our place so we could be set free. That's the gospel. There's a simple story and analogy that, that paints the picture well. Imagine that you're driving down 
I don't know, one of the roads around here and the speed limit is posted as 50 miles an hour, but you're feeling kind of spicy and, and, and you, you let it rip and, and, and there with your Maranatha Chapel sticker on the back of your car, you're going over 100 miles an hour. And as luck would have it, there's the cop and he's got you on the radar and the lights come on and he, he catches up to you and pulls you over and he says, uh, sir, do you know how fast you were going? And he, you know, he's got you dead to rights. He shows you the radar gun and you're guilty as charged. What are you going to do? And so you fess up and, and because you've been, you, you were in such excess of the posted speed limit, he doesn't just write you a ticket, but he impounds your car and he, he puts you in handcuffs and sticks you in the back of the car and he's driving you straight to the courthouse to deal with the consequences of what you chose to do. And, and, and while you're driving there, let's say you have this thought, oh yeah, my dad is also a judge in this county where I just got caught. <laughs> it's my lucky day. He's going to let me off the hook. I'm good. I'm good. He's got me. But then you remember something else. Your dad is not only the judge, he's also a really righteous judge. He's fair and he never lets criminals off the hook without paying for their crimes. And so you're caught on the horns of this dilemma. What's your dad going to do? He loves you, and so he'll want to set you free, but he's also fair and just, so he has to do what's right. And so sure enough, you're led into the courtroom, and, and your dad stands behind the bench and takes his seat, and he reads the charges against you, and he asks you, how do you plead? And you look over at the cop, and he's pointing to the radar gun, and so you... You throw up your hands and say, what can I do? I'm guilty. I did it. I sped. And in that moment, your dad, with love in his eyes, pounds the gavel and he declares you guilty as charged and he pronounces the judgment. You'll either have to pay $500 fine or spend a week in jail. And since you're young, you don't have the money. You can't pay the fine. You're going to have to spend a week in jail. And at this point, the bailiff comes over and he's about to lead you away. But then your dad says, hold on. And he takes off his robe. He steps away from his bench and he comes down to the table and he pulls out of his pocket a checkbook and he writes the check for $500 and you're then released from the handcuffs and set free and able to go walk in your freedom. And that, in and, and just like a really small, minuscule way, paints a picture of what your heavenly father has done before you. You see, we all stand guilty before God. And let's just be clear about one thing. Our infraction, what we're guilty of, it's not just like a speeding ticket. It is so infinitely worse than that. Every time you sin against God, it is an act of holy treason and betrayal against a perfect and righteous heavenly father. In that sense, I guess you could say that we're all just like Judas. As much as I hate to admit it, I've betrayed the Lord and you have too. Not just once or twice, but hundreds or even thousands of times. And we read on this night that Judas identified Jesus by kissing him. And we think, oh, the treachery of that hiding your sinister act behind an act of intense intimacy. Is there anything more intimate than a kiss? And yet how many times have we come in here and blessed the Lord with our lips on Sunday and then gone out and denied him by the way we live our lives Monday through Saturday? We're all Judas, and the penalty that we've incurred because of our sin, the wages of sin is death, the Bible declares. But praise God, there is a judge in heaven who is also our heavenly Abba. He is our Father. 
And he knew that we couldn't pay the price. And so he stepped down from his throne. He left heaven and he came to this earth to pay a price that we could never pay. To pay a debt that he didn't owe. And he didn't just pull out his checkbook and write a $500 check. But Jesus paid for your sins with his own blood. Make no mistake about it. It wasn't the nails that drove through his wrist that held him to the tree that day 2,000 years ago. But it was his love for you and I. Peter talks about how we weren't redeemed with something perishable like silver or gold, but we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Praise the Lord. You know, there's the U.S. Code on Treason, Sedition, and Subversive Activities, and I looked it up. Here's what it states, and I quote, whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death. We've harbored the enemy in our thought lives and in our actions. We've rebelled and betrayed the Lord, and the wages of sin is death. But, that verse goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a free gift that must be received by grace through faith. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.